welcome, listeners one and all. Welcome to Regency Rumours, the podcast where a British-American couple recap and discuss Bridgerton, the Regency Netflix show. I'm Jordan. And I'm Kayla. And we're on to episode two, Shock and Delight. But first, a big, big thank you to everyone who's listened to our first episode and who's begun to follow the podcast. We're so excited that you're following along with us. Shout out to our Bridgerton Facebook group. We're loving the discussions people are starting. And if you haven't joined yet, it's facebook.com slash groups slash Regency Rumours with a U. You can discuss all things Bridgerton over there, and we've already had a few conversations about things like inheritance and scandal, which we will cover in detail when the appropriate episodes come up. We've been talking about the possibility of Bridgerton Season 2 as well, so join us at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Regency Rumours with a U to get in on the discussion. I just want to say before we get started that in this past week, your wife has become a meme queen. You can now bow to me like everyone bows to Queen Charlotte because I am the queen of all Bridgerton memes. So we're in lockdown here in the UK and honestly things have gotten a little bit desperate. I've watched all the things. I'm staring at a computer screen for my PhD all day and I just think I'm going a little little insane. Uh, I've never made a meme before in my life. I had no idea how you could make a meme. I've seen them a ton on the internet, but I've never made one myself. Um, at almost 30, I'd like to think I'm too old to be a meme maker, but alas, desperate times mean we do some crazy things. So I posted a Grey's Anatomy meme on my Facebook, which is, of course, Shonda Rhimes's most famous show. It had to do, to do with McDreamy, which is Patrick Dempsey's character uh, named Derek Shepard on the show. I was thinking about the fact that I hadn't really heard people talking about the names McDreamy and McSteamy in a really long time, which he was another doctor on the show, and probably because, spoiler alert, they're no longer on the show. Um, So I don't know if it's been a long time since I've watched it or whatever, but I was like, oh my gosh, the Duke needs his own nickname, right? Like, McDreamy and McSteamy, they were huge um, back when um, Patrick Dempsey was on Grey's Anatomy. So I was like, well... Obviously, the Duke needs his own Shonda Rhimes McSteamy McDreamy name. Mm -hmm. So because when Grey's Anatomy first came out, a lot of it was centered around these hot doctors and that became such a thing. I was like, well, there's all this buzz now around the Duke and he's a Shonda Rhimes character as well. So he needs a name. So I decided to name him myself. Uh Uh-huh. So I now dub him the Duke of Hastings a.k.a. Regé Jean Page. I hope I've said that right. His name is now Mick Regency. So we've got Mick Dreamy, Mick Steamy, and now Mick Regency. Thank you very much. I am a genius. Ah, yes. Meme queen and genius. I knew there was a reason I married you. Obviously. (laughs) I posted in a couple of, like, Facebook groups, mainly Jane Austen and period drama groups, and it did get several hundred likes and a bunch of comments. So it's not quite viral, but I feel like patting myself on the back for that one. It's corny. It's cheesy. But I figured the Duke, with his beautiful abs, deserved to follow in the footsteps of Derek Shepard and have his own name. And I feel like McRegency, it's just right. And so according to Dictionary.com, based on the nicknames for the, for the two characters from the TV show Grey's Anatomy, McDreamy is a colloquial term for a handsome man who would make an ideal husband, while a McSteamy is his sexy Lothario counterpart. So if those are the definitions of McSteamy and McDreamy, then my definition of 
McRegency is the ideal man you'd want to marry in a Regency novel. Like I was saying last week, uh, Roger Jean Page looks like the perfect guy to grace the covers of a sexy Regency novel. So this is the perfect name for him. So I, I have been trying to think of what the opposite to McRegency uh, would be. I don't know if I've got the like energy to really think about it too much, though. <laughs> so maybe our listeners can chime in with the opposite to McRegency in the Facebook group. Um, the only thing that could possibly that came to mind was McRake. Yeah, like we were talking about Regency men being called rakes last week. So McRake, McRegency, and his counterpart McRake. Yeah, but the whole point is McDreamy and McSteamy. And McRegency all end in E. McRakey? <laughs> <laughs> I think Reiki is a, an Eastern healing technique. So anyway, um, yeah, it's a great viral. I mean, I'm sure nobody see, has seen that. I'm sorry. There's been plenty of people that have seen it. And I'm sure it's floating around the interwebs. So just know that I was the genius behind that when you do see it and when it does go viral and when everybody starts calling him that you can see that meme and you can think Kayla from the podcast I listen to Regency Rumors she made that and if you haven't seen it and it has been floating around thank you very much but if you haven't seen it you can also see the meme on my Facebook and Instagram at a Regency girl Ooh, subtle plug so, just like Mary Bennett in Pride and Prejudice playing the piano for far too long, you've delighted us long enough, my dear. Fine. On to the show! This is Bridgerton Season 1, Episode 2, Shock and Delight. So we open with a flashback of Simon's mother giving birth. She's really struggling, and we mean really struggling. Lady Danbury is there, as any good friend would be, but we quickly find out that his father, the former Duke of Hastings, doesn't want her in there, and has a bunch of random servants waiting around in the hall, we guess just to hold her back. The Duke does rush into the bedroom. He is super impatient, and all he wants to know is if he's going to have a son, like right now, in the middle of her wailing and screaming. After being absolutely ridiculous, he finds out that it's a boy. He grabs the baby, and the look on his face is as if he's been handed a trophy after an Indy 500. He declares loudly, I have a son, and passes around his trophy. Lady Danbury runs into the bedroom to check on Simon's mother, Sarah, and the doctor, however, doesn't look happy. She's lost too much blood. The last thing she says is that she's given, she has finally given the Duke a son before she passes away. The Duke is in the other room, ignoring the situation, and names his child Simon Arthur Fitzranulf Bassett, the next Duke of Hastings. We then get a shot of Simon looking at the bed that his mother has died in, this is back in the present, and it's clear that he's come back to what is an empty house. A maid walks by and asks him if they should set up the Duchess's bedroom, to which he replies, no, that, that will not be necessary. And then we cut to the intro card. So right off the bat, I just want to say that I appreciate this short intro. Now that we're on to episode two, we don't need like a five minute intro. I have got to get to the drama, the suspense. I've got to know what Lady Whistledown has got to tell us. So let's get going. So thank you, Shonda, for these short intros now. And that's all. So this childbirth scene, it's really heartbreaking to watch. 
it's hard to watch any woman give childbirth um, on television and then to watch it in a way where it's essentially just meant to be a surrogate to give birth to a child with no regards to her well-being whatsoever. It's difficult to watch a scene like this. But in those three minutes, it already tells us a lot more about Simon's father and his mother and the role that Lady Danbury is going to play in his life. That's a, a fair point. And that's the kind of thing we're going to see a lot more of in this episode. But, you know, I was really curious about his name. It's completely irrelevant to the rest of the show, completely. But these are the kinds of things that I like to research and kind of just come up when, I, when I'm, you know, watching these kinds of things. So one of his middle names is Fitz Ranulph. And it's a really interesting choice. And it's rather unique, you'd think. But there are, there are two people that come up on page one of Google when you search for Fitz Ranulph. One, Robert Fitz Ranulph, a.k.a. Robert of Alfreton born in 1117, and one Ranulph, or Ralph, Fitzranulph, Lord of Spenathorn and Lord of Middleham, North Riding in Yorkshire, circa 1220. So, not unheard of, but basically two families um, in the north, in Yorkshire, not down south, uh, anywhere near London. Now, the really curious thing is that this family, um, or these families, rather, in the 12th and 13th centuries, are using it in the Anglo-Norman a.k.a. original sense that meant son of. So there are probably more, but we can't easily find them, which is fine. Except Bridgerton is set in the Regency era, as we established last episode, in 1813. This is well after anyone is called Anglo-Norman. They're all British now. This is after the revival of Fitz, the patronomic, a name that is based on your father, like the Welsh Ap or Ab, coming from Mab, or the Scottish slash Irish Mac. But the revival of the Fitz indicator was in the Stuart era, which is 1603 to 1704. And it was used particularly for illegitimate sons of kings, princes, and the high nobility. So, for example, Charles II had a son called Fitzroy with one of his mistresses. So, why do we think that the Duke of Hastings gave his son a name that means son of Ranulf or Ralph? Perhaps that's the Duke's name. I have been looking and I can't seem to find whether Simon's father is ever given a first name in the series and I've asked on the Facebook group if anybody who's read the books could tell me a little bit more about the Duke in the book but so far nothing or you know it, it could be that symbol it's his, his name or is it a foreshadowing of the Duke's displeasure of, at his son's demeanor so anyway I, th I thought that was interesting but on with the recap okay then so the queen is taking a bath about five different girls are attending to her which is a lot the door opens and someone runs in with Lady, Lady Whistledown's paper. She shoots out of the bath naked and we see that even the queen wants to know what Lady Whistledown has to say now. Daphne is back in the society papers after her eventual evening with the Duke. Then we see the Duke coming out of a lady's bed. That was fast. He's headed to promenade with Daphne or promenade as you would say. Um, the two of them negotiate on how many events they'll attend together. They decide that five balls is probably enough. Five balls is enough for me as well. So stop it. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about this last episode. Call them dances. Dances. Um, over at the Featherington house, the women are discussing what they call Marina's condition. Apparently, somehow the daughters have found out she is sick in some way. Um, but Lady Featherington tells them that her condition is catching. You can see the worry on Penelope's face because she knows it is pregnancy. So first of all, I just want to comment on the first five minutes of these costumes. They are all over the place. 
We've got the maids looking like they're coming out of the 1900s in Downton Abbey. The Queen's Palace have got men walking around like they're in Versailles. Then Lady Featherington and the girls, they look like they've stepped out of the 80s with these metallic bright and yellow dresses. I don't even know where to look. And it's in these times when I watch the show that I'm like, well, I love the design of some of these. I love the colors and everything, but it's totally in a fantasy world because these outfits are just ridiculous at times. So I also wanted to talk about promenading, promenading. What do you say? I would say promenade. Promenade. So promenading. Um, so this was a po- popular activity in the Regency period. I've written a post coming up on my blog later on this month about this. So I was having a lot of fun researching promenading. Apparently women had a bunch of different dresses for different occasions and promenading was one of them. So they were changing multiple times a day. So you could have a walking or a promenading dress, a carriage dress, a riding dress, a morning dress for when you got up in the morning, ball gowns and evening dresses, and then court dresses if you were lucky enough to attend uh, court, which is exactly what happened in the first episode with Daphne when she was presented at court. So she had a specific dress for that event, obviously. But in terms of promenading, women would wear dresses made of elaborate fabrics and intricate details that were meant to catch people's eyes. So the whole point of promenading was that you could be seen and so that others could see you. So kind of like a public catwalk. But the whole point of these dresses so that uh, would be that other people could look at you and comment on your fashion and see who you were promenading with. So today you can go to Bath in September at the Jane Austen Festival and join the promenade, which is one of the most popular events of the festival. And one day I'm roping you into going with me. Are you sure about that? You're totally going with me. We're getting you an outfit. We've discussed this many times. It's happening. Anyways, so for Daphne and the Duke, it's clear that the two of them being seen together promenading is a really big deal as it would spread the information that they were courting. It's also why she's so dressed up. And bless her, this girl is always dressed up. When are they not dressed up? Yeah, but Daphne in particular. I mean, that slicked back hair and those bangs and... Her dress is always just looking so perfect. Too much for me. But but all of them do that. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a it's a big thing of the genre, really, isn't it? Um, I I don't have much to say on their dresses, to be honest. But are we not mentioning the fact here that Simon says that if he were truly courting Daphne, all he would need was five minutes alone in a dining room? <laughs> <laughs> Men I mean, only want one thing, and it's so disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, he's uh, he's definitely the very definition of a rake right now. Um, you know. I mean, I think it shows what he's been thinking about in terms of Daphne. So oh, there's it, that. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe. Oh come on, you've seen the way they look at each other. You know what he's thinking about. Uh, no, I mean, this early on, I genuinely think that he's just playing with her. He knows how naive and uh, innocent she is yeah. in, in the ways of, of the world and stuff. And so even later when something happens, ooh, um, it's a very minor thing, but when, when something happens later in the episode, I think he's genuinely doing it to, to tease her at first. It's, it's right now, you know, it's all unintentional. Do you think? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he doesn't mean to, to feel the way he does later. I think he already feels it now, but no, anyways, I don't think so. I don't he think does. So. No, he does. No, 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 no. Just one look at his face, he does. 
Anyways. I don't know. No, I don't think so. Anyway, carrying on. Next, we see Daphne's completely opposite sister, Eloise, walking with Penelope Featherington. And she says, does Daphne think she's in love? Does she think this is an accomplishment? She's complaining that unlike something like university, simply falling in love should not be seen as an accomplishment. And Penelope isn't listening because she has some news. Someone is pregnant. She claims it's a maid, but Eloise asks her, how did she get pregnant if she's not married? And she tells Penelope that she must find out how it happened so that it never happens to them. I think this is such a fun, cute scene. That was totally the way I was in high school. I was very much a boy avoider. I was talking about wanting to accomplish all these things in my life and not getting involved with any stinky boys or making babies because I had stuff to do like going to university. So this scene is super relatable for someone like me. I already love this character, Eloise. However, it seems like I've changed my ways because here I am, a failed woman, married up. I'm so sorry, Eloise. I caved. But I'm still doing the doing the university thing though it's just unfortunately with a man Uh uh-huh and here i am watching bridgerton for the second time in two weeks that i can do a podcast about it i don't even get to watch star trek more than once and speaking of i've got another episode to watch so don't you unfortunately with the man me missy okay we're talking about bridgerton now thank you very much (laughs) back at the bridgerton residence the family is discussing daphne's prospects in the public eye When do they not? Uh, When Eloise bursts into the room and asks, how do you become pregnant with a child? She's quickly shushed by her mother, but it is insinuated that her brothers know exactly how to make a baby, while she and Daphne are left in the dark. Daphne and the Duke's plan is clearly beginning to work as callers are showing up at the door. Anthony quickly shows up with Mr. Bearbrook in tow, demanding to shut it down. Somehow he thinks Mr. Bearbrook is an option, even with that big shiner on his eye. Anthony takes Daphne and Violet for a private chat, and they inform him that not only does Daphne have suitors, she also has the attention of the Duke. Because Anthony knows him, however, he knows how the Duke is not a serious suitor. He then demands that she marry Bearbrook, which is just insane. We then see that the Duke is sparring in a ring with a friend. He is thank you, shirtless, and pulling some very good punches. Anthony, being Anthony, bursts into the room to confront him about his sister. He gets in the ring with the Duke, and the two begin fighting. He basically tells him that with all the brothels and all the things that he's seen him done, he shouldn't be anywhere near his sister. So the brother's innuendo here was hilarious. Fencing indeed. It shocks me that anyone can get to this stage of life and not know about the birds and the bees, but I I suppose the kids of that era didn't really have that school playground where little wretches told everybody what sex was. Also, Anthony storming into the house, um, he gives his top hat to a servant, but he does it so violently that it just falls to the ground again. And I didn't I, even see that. I really, I really liked that. I noticed it the first time. Um, but the, the servant just carries on walking because clearly it wasn't intentional. Um, I would also like to apologize to the listeners because we've been doing Lord Burbrook a great disservice. Oh, how is that possible? Well, I had no idea why we thought that he was only Mr. Burbrook. Um, There is no way that a mere gentleman would be allowed to marry Daphne in her brother's eyes at all. So no, he is a lord. In fact, later in the episode, we hear to him referred to as a mere baron by Whistledown. Oh, have we been calling him Mr. Burbrook? Yes. Oh, dear. Well, 
maybe that's all that maybe that is all he deserves yes yeah um but no yeah he he is a lord um we we should start referring to him as that i'm so ready for us to be over with him anyways well i know but the thing is like it it wouldn't have made sense everything we were saying last episode about marrying up in society that would have been even worse so in this in this case whistledown refers to him later in the episode as a mere baron because again viscount is above baron right so daphne marrying burbrook would be going down in the hierarchy it wouldn't be good for her at all yeah, it's just it's something to to keep in mind. He isn't he isn't below a baron. He he's he is still nobility. So Lady Violet says that Lord Burbrook may not respect a lady's wishes, but he'll certainly respect a man's. Except, hmm, will he now? He's a vile little creature. But the best villains are the ones that we can hate properly. So we go on to another flashback to Simon's childhood. He's a young boy now, and he's being tutored by a governess. He should be speaking by now, but he's silent. The governess tells his father that he is advancing in his letters but not speaking. And his father is really annoyed by this. He gets so annoyed that he raises a hairbrush to hit him. And finally, four-year-old Simon says no to stop his father from hitting him. But this is where we discover that he was born with a stutter. And simply because he stutters, his father labels him as an imbecile and decides that his son is now dead to him. Now it's late at night at the Featheringtons and Penelope sneaks into Marina's room where she has been extreme quarantining, having been locked up by Lady Featherington. So the two get into a conversation about how Marina came to be pregnant and we find out that after months of passing notes back and forward to a boy that she'd uh, grown up with in the country, she's fallen in love with him. And even though he's gone off to war to fight with Wellington, the two continue to write back and forth. Marina shows Penelope a stack of letters that the two have exchanged. And Marina tells her how she became pregnant, saying that it happened because of love. It's clear, by the way, that the two girls are talking that Penelope has no idea what she means. So this is a time period where people knew so little about speech impediments or disabilities. And someone with a simple stutter or lisp could be labeled as a halfwit or an idiot simply because they didn't understand why they were, weren't behaving like the majority of society so unfortunately some of these people ended up in mental institutions or locked away somewhere within an estate and not allowed out into society when i mean obviously there was nothing wrong with them right but because they had something like a stutter they weren't accepted into um societal circles so it's just really disheartening to see that his father is more concerned with carrying his title than his connection with his child um and something as simple as a stutter keeping him from having a relationship with simon it's really hard to watch yeah i mean it's super disappointing but it it was probably a bit more common than we'd perhaps think it and it went on way longer than we thought i think even oh, yeah. even into the 1960s sometimes people were, were being put into yeah. mental institutions for no good reason so it's um it's been a long standing thing and it's yeah. it's hard to watch that that families would do that to their own family members i mean historically if you think about the fact that a household had to be um run by the head of the house so the duke thinks that you know what good is being a duke if your duchy fades away after your death because the son is incapable of of running it i mean although it's it's a villainous thing and i don't like the character for what he does it's you can see where 
in terms of making a good villain or, or in this case it's more of a um an inciting incident i guess for this character you can see that this is a good thing to base it on because the duke has legitimate fears of his own that's that's causing this right but you mean like his insecurities yeah his insecurities yeah. his fears of, of his family name going down the drain and you know he says that the um the monarchy has raised them to the duchy title right you know he he has to be concerned that he is failing in the monarch's eyes i guess if if he doesn't raise a son so yeah i mean disappointing it's obviously abhorrent to us now but in some ways you can kind of see why he might have thought that so now the queen is reading lady whistledown again and bemoans bemoans mm -hmm. did you write that mm -hmm. I'm reading the notes here and he's written bemoans what what does that even mean bemoans literally exactly what the queen does she she's bemoaning the lack of interesting betrothals I'm sure I know this word, but I don't know this word, so... Yeah, it just means complaining, whining, a little bit of what you're so doing you right now. So you changed what I put for to replace it with your British word. Look, every word that you're speaking is British, my love. I'm oh, sorry to go. tell you that. Here we go. Anyways, back to <laughs> back to the recap. I'm, I'm kind of joking. I love you. I love you too. Oh, yeah, okay. So the queen is reading Lady Whistledown again and bemoans the lack of interesting betrothals this season. She also dismisses news about her husband callously. Next, we see that the Bridgerton house, the queen has written specifically to Violet Bridgerton, causing quite a stir in the house. She's invited her to a private tea with the queen. Another flashback occurs, this time with something a little bit more hopeful. As Simon is practicing his writing as a young boy, Lady Danbury shows up. Without a word from his father, she's presumed that the child was dead, but she's happily surprised that he's not. She tells him that his mother would cry if she knew that her son and her dearest friend were strangers. Lady Danbury soon finds out that he has a stutter, but unlike his father, she chooses to empower him rather than dismiss him. She tells him that she will help him get over his stammer and that one day he will make something of himself. But he must promise that when he steps into the light, you will be worthy of the attention you command. Fast forward to the ball in the present day. The Duke of Hastings is carrying Lady Danbury on his arm, confidently entering the ballroom. I'd just like to say how captivating this scene was. This actress, Adjua Ando, who plays Lady Danbury, She's an absolute powerhouse. She has such a commanding presence on screen. The scene where she's talking to a young Simon is so powerful and it almost made me tear up. The writing in this scene is just great too. Her telling them that she will rise him up, but then he has to be worthy of the attention that she gets once he's at the top. Um, it's it's just a, a really cool thing to see, I think. Um, and she's become his mother figure, but more than that, she's become his champion which a lot of people don't don't get in their lives and we can see that he's blossomed into an accomplished man because of it N you know not because of his father who failed him um, and who thought he would come to nothing but from his mother's friend who saw something in him and I just think that's super powerful 
And I think a really interesting thing about this as well is, yeah, super powerful, really great to see. But it also kind of highlights the fact that in this episode and probably the show as a whole, the the, the women are actually, they're more in control and they know a lot more of what they're talking about than the men do because the men are just ridiculous. There's a, there's a scene in another episode that we'll talk more about this on that we noted as we were watching it the first time. I will agree that women know way more than men. So there we go. Sounds I said good. In, I said in the show. In life, in everything. Okay. Anyways, on to what I was commenting about. So side note, I looked up the actress because I don't think I've personally seen her in anything else. But I just want to say that I was in awe of her performance that it crossed my mind that I bet she would be amazing to watch on screen. And of course... Sure enough, she is a seasoned stage actress with experience a mile long performing at the National Theater and the Globe. And I, for one, would just love to go and see her perform live if she ever does any plays in the future. If we ever get out of these quarantine over and over again, you should take me to go see her live on stage. That would be fantastic. Yeah, I think it would be really, really good. Um, I know her from a TV show, show called Casualty. I'm a proper cultured man, me. I don't know what that is. Okay, so we're now at the ball, and right away Daphne and Simon begin dancing, much to the dismay of her brother Anthony. The two tell each other that they must pretend to enjoy each other's company, even though they do not, even though, to us, it is clear that they do enjoy each other's company. It's starting to get very confusing to tell the difference between the truth and the charade. After the dance, Lord Burbrook comes up to Anthony, demanding his prize of Daphne yet again. The Duke informs Anthony of Lord Burbrook's actions at the last ball, that he assaulted Daphne and she is the one who gave him a purple eye. Upon hearing the news, Anthony is shocked. Surely his sister would have told him the news herself. But no. Because of this, he finally realises what kind of man Burbrook is and he calls off the engagement. Only after this, okay. Daphne sees the commotion going on between the men and comes up and demands to know what's going on. Anthony assures her that the situation is taken care of and she admonishes the Duke for telling. Walking home from the ball, the Duke comes across Burbrook again. Or rather, Burbrook comes upon the Duke again because he's following him. Lord Burbrook, for some reason, has still not taken the massive hint that he is in no way ever going to marry Daphne. Lord Burbrook tries to convince the Duke to speak to Anthony and persuade him to reconsider. He tells the Duke that he needs her for her connections and money, whilst the Duke does not because he already has the connections and the money. The Duke responds by telling him that the decision should be up to Daphne. Lord Burbrook responds, When I'm buying a horse, I do not negotiate with the horse. Lord Burbrook then assumes that the Duke has already taken her virginity and gets in a panic because he's afraid that she is not intact. The Duke then beats him up. So I feel like there's so much to unpack with this scene, but essentially something like this is so annoying to watch as a woman because it's all about the men. Even though this is supposed to be about Daphne, her choices in life, and her marriage prospects, it's down to these three men deciding her life. So her brother would not listen to her telling him that Lord Bearbrook assaulted her. It's only when another man tells him that he believed that, and then he acts. Well, hold on. He doesn't. He doesn't find out from her. No, I know. I'm saying she doesn't feel confident enough to tell him. She already right. knows okay, that yeah, he's yeah, not yeah. going to. Mm-hmm. So it's just infuriating. And it's something that I think still happens today for women. Um, yeah, definitely. Also, the matter of Lord Bearbrook 
doing a 180 and suddenly deciding he doesn't want her if she's not intact. There's just no words for that sort of thing. It's just awful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the, the actor, and I've forgotten his name, the actor has done a good job of portraying Lord Burbrook in such a way that we, we love to hate him. Um, and it is interesting to note, I, I should have said it in the recap, really, but the Duke attacks Lord Burbrook not for Daphne's honour, but for the reference to the apple not falling far from the tree. And we'll see how that plays out throughout the next scene in the series. Um, but the Duke isn't defending Daphne's honour when he attacks Lord Burbrook. Oh, He's you defending mean... his own. Right, because right after that, Lord Bearbrook makes a comment about his upbringing, well, about the Duke's so, upbringing, right? So, yeah, I mean, basically he says, he says, well, your your mother didn't give your father what he wanted. So Lord Bearbrook makes a reference to the fact that his father couldn't get a, a son by his mother for quite a long time. And it's this kind of insinuation that his father... Um, had other dalliances um, and that the apple doesn't far from the tree i.e you know simon the duke is going around sleeping around and not marrying people that he attacks lord burbrook i don't know that i even caught that but that's interesting of course all the things that were said about daphne that wasn't enough but as soon as it's something personal and he's basically saying i know that probably like your father you're a man whore <laughs> That that's that's when the Duke attacks uh, Lord Berwick, and so that is interesting. I didn't catch that, but it was only on the second watch that I truly kind of saw that into play. So we're in another flashback now, and Lady Danbury has brought Simon to attempt to meet his father yet again. Poor boy. She's brought him to his father to show him that he's doing well in school and that he's capable of speaking. However, Simon hesitates on one word and his father rejects him yet again. He says all this different sweet stuff to his father and then he hesitates on one word and it shows that he can't speak properly, I suppose. And his father, again, doesn't want anything to do with him. So he tells Lady Danbury to get out of his office and to keep her bitch mouth shut. Excuse my language, which is just so charming. Um, heartbreakingly, the young Simon tells his father that he's been writing letters to him. He tells him that he's not dead. To his face, his father tells him how disappointed he is that he will inherit the Hastings fortune and title. The Duke tells his son, you are as useless as your mother proved to be. We then see a grown Simon going through those letters that his father never opened in his empty office. So this is just really heartbreaking. <laughs> it's helping us to see why the Duke is the way he is and why Lady Danbury is so important in his life. He's dealing with so much from his father and now having to fill his shoes because he didn't really have an appropriate example of how to do that. And he's a bit lost and obviously very resentful towards his father. It probably also makes him very untrusting of anyone. So I just feel like Poor Simon, he, he wasn't given really the proper tools from his father to, to take his father's role. And now he's kind of sitting in an empty house going, what do I do? And also, you know, F you. So. I mean, but again, Lady Danbury raised him properly. His father had nothing to do with it. Oh, absolutely. So again, the power resides with the women in the series. 
Oh, totally. I, I think, though, for Simon, now he's got this big house and he's got this title. And because he didn't have a father, you know, kind of like Simba, where he's like, one day this will all be yours. You know, like he didn't have a father kind of saying that stuff to him in a very like prideful way, like this will be your title and this will be yours. And this is how you have to, you know, normally with th these large estates, a father would, you know, set his son on a horse alongside him and they'd go out in the fields and he'd talk about the property. And, you know, you'd grow up knowing exactly how you were supposed to be and what you were over and your tenants and all that. Right, exactly. Because you, you're essentially, you would have been in an apprenticeship to, to your father, right? Because, because it is a role and you would be taking on that, that role right. once your father passes on. He hasn't had that, and so he's had to learn that elsewhere. He did a very good job of it. Or Lady Danbury made sure that he did a very good job of it. I think he's handling it well, but I think in these quiet moments when you see him in the house alone with everything covered, he's like, oh, what does this title mean to me? And what does this role that I now have, what does it mean to me? And right now, it means screwing other over his father and not giving him an heir. Yeah. Yeah, so lots of daddy issues, and that's something that crosses the genre divide and shows up in literally every scrap of literature that you could care to name. So this is something that I'm very familiar with from my, my other shows and things like that. I think it's, again, it's a good point. It's something that always kind, kind of affects readers quite well, uh, quite strongly, rather. Um, any show or film, you mentioned The Lion King, that has a son losing his father or something has always been a lot for me to handle. I'm glad that they made this father um, easy to, to hate because otherwise I would have been a bit of a mess. Had a hard time if Simon lost a beloved father. Yes. Oh, yeah. Aww. Not that I've lost my father, but, you know. <laughs> I get you. So Daphne and the Duke are promenading again. They are flirting without quite knowing it when Lord Burbrook appears yet again, this time with a whole face that is black and blue. This guy can just not take a hint. Yeah. Also, Daphne looks at the Duke and says, what did you do? He comes up to the Bridgerton family to announce that he has gotten a special license to wed Daphne. He essentially blackmails the family by saying that they wouldn't want the news of Daphne being seen with him alone late at night to go to get to Lady Whistledown. He's forced the family into a corner. Daphne decides that the only way to save the entire family from ruin is to marry Nigel Burbrook. Later that night, Daphne and Violet have a heart-to-heart. -heart. Her mother tells her that whilst happiness in a marriage can be very fulfilling, that her having children and managing a household will also be fulfilling. Daphne has seen how happy her parents have been in their own marriage and is having a hard time with the prospect of not having the same for her own life. So obviously the whole plan of Lord Bearbrook's is because he wants Daphne's money and connections. He's got no affection for her. How can he? They've barely talked. He doesn't know her. And he says that he's won the prize of the season, basically. He's looking to cash in on her dowry, which was essentially a payment to the husband from the woman's family for her upkeep throughout her life, which is just so sweet. <laughs> so... There was what was called a marriage settlement, which is essentially a prenup that was drawn up before the wedding and agreed upon by the groom and the bride's family, which stipulated the financial terms of the marriage. This would have guidelines on any of the pin money the wife could have. It could include agreements on any of the properties or income that she might 
that might come to her and then be transferred to her husband. I think it's essentially what Anthony and Lord Burbrook uh, had when they kept mentioning that they have an arrangement. So everything's kind of been sat down and discussed in terms of Daphne and her dowry. So Lord Burbrook would have already known at this point how much Daphne was going to be bringing into the marriage and is going to be desperate enough to blackmail to get it. So in marriage in the Regency era, pretty much everything went to the husband upon marriage. In 1765, William Blackstone wrote out women's legal existence and rights to marry. By marriage, the husband and wife are one person in law. That is, the very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage, or at least is incorporated and consolidated into that of the husband, and her condition during her marriage is called her coverture. For this reason, a man cannot grant anything to his wife or enter into covenant with her, for the grant would be to suppose her separate existence, and to covenant with her would be only to covenant with himself. A husband may also bequeath anything to his wife by will, for that cannot take effect till the coverture is determined by his death. The chief legal effects of marriage during the coverture, upon which he may observe that even the disabilities which the wife lies under are for the most part intended for her protection and benefit. So great a favourite is the female sex of the laws of England. Beautiful. Great job. Thank you. So this meant that women couldn't have property. They couldn't draw up a will, could not make money of their own or start a business, and they could not even have custody of their own children, technically. Everything about a woman's life would go to her husband. So she would get something that was called pin money, which was essentially an allowance that she was allowed to use throughout her life to buy things, but she didn't have any more freedom than that. Single women, coincidentally, fared a lot better, as did widowed women because they had a lot of legal freedoms that married women did not. So that's probably one of the reasons why Eloise keeps talking about how life will be over once you marry, because those freedoms would be gone. So a lot of women, if they were widowed, um, they would avoid marriage again at all costs because being widowed really is the ultimate freedom at that time because your husband's dead, you've, you've got all the con- control over the estate, uh, the money, that sort of thing, and it's not unless you marry another man that you don't have control of those things anymore. So really a lot of, a lot of widowed women would, would think twice before marrying again if they had money. What about children, though, for the widowed? I, I think... Because we see in, in Lady Violet's case that she doesn't really have control because her eldest son does. So, so in that case, do you mean if if a a woman is widowed and they don't have children, she would not marry because then she would just have control of all of it? I I think so. I think there's something. I think there was something where I was reading that in in the dowry as well. There was a setup with the children, how the children would be taken care of, how her children would be taken care of if the husband died first and so I think some of that is tied up in the dowry to where even once he's died they know exactly how much amount would go to the children so even though in kind of these situations where they're deciding on marriage and stuff in terms of how much money the children would receive that's already been laid out you know before they're even married even if they don't know the number of children they've kind of given a vague outline in in the marriage agreement as far as what I was researching. 
So this is also another reason why Daphne was probably hoping for a love match, because not only would a young woman want to fall in love, of course, but a love match would also mean that at least you'd find a person who, at least you liked the person who was controlling your future. And if the two of you loved each other, then the hope would be that your husband would treat you well and not just see you as a handful of cash to be obtained like Lord Bearbrook saw Daphne as. So that's probably an extra reason, not just because she wants a love match to be like, oh, I'd love to be in love. Because, like, of course, we'd all love to be in love. But it's... Excuse you? Would you like to rephrase that? I am in love. You know what I mean? Like, we all love to be in love. But this is another reason why Daphne probably was hoping for a love match. Because if you get on really well, then hopefully he's going to let you have a bit more freedoms even if you don't have those in the eyes of the law. Right. I don't have much to add here, except that Eloise's face in the carriage as Daphne is saying that she must marry Burbrook was hilarious. Like when she was going back back and forth between them and she was looking... She's looking at Daphne, then she's looking at Violet, then she's looking at Anthony, then she's looking back at Daphne. It was just brilliant. It was comedic timing. Amazing. (laughs) So the day has finally arrived for Lady Violet to have the private tea with the Queen, which was originally a happy occasion but she now seems dismayed. We find out that the Queen is annoyed because she'd expected for Daphne to be paired with the Duke. The Queen insinuates that the whole family will feel the repercussions of Daphne marrying Lord Bearbrook and essentially gives Violet the idea of inviting Lord Bearbrook's mother over for tea so that her servants can dig up any dirt about him so that she can get Daphne out of this marriage. Clever. Lady Bearbrook arrives and she is exactly as you would expect, dull and in denial about her son. She says, Nigel is my one and only child. God did not bless me with another because perfection had already been achieved. She then tells Daphne she must try harder to show her affection to Lord Burbrook because he had already turned away many other beautiful suitors. Ew. Downstairs, the servants talk and Daphne's lady's maid finds out that Lord Burbrook has a son by one of his maids that he refuses to provide for. Though Daphne worries that no one will believe them if they say they've found out about this information, Violet decides that the best course of action is to do what women do best. Talk and hope that the information will get to Lady Whistledown. So this last scene is a fun one because we've just talked about the ways that women have so little power over their own lives in this time period. This is one small sliver of power that they can use in order to alter the course of Daphne's fate. So they can talk and gossip and hopefully get the information in the right hands. It's sad that things like this have to happen that way, but it is a way that they can attempt to fix something that's a mess that the men around them, aka Anthony, has put them in. Yeah, and again, a hilarious scene. The acting in this episode really sold me on the whole show. Um, Lady Bearbrook was wonderful in a very British comedy way. Absolutely loved it. I think it was it was really good, really well done. Yeah, she's a very annoying character, so I get why they'd have put her in there. Just as annoying as her son. Mm-hmm. So down to the last minutes of the show, Lady Violet's plan worked. Thank God. The news got back to Lady Whistledown, and it was circulated throughout London. He's now a disgraced man, and he's left town. Good riddance, goodbye. Anthony comes into the drawing room to confront front his mother on the matter. He sees what hand that she had in the situation and tells her he plans on changing his ways when it comes to finding Daphne, a husband. Violet tells her son that he should leave the matchmaking up to her and that Daphne will eventually marry the Duke. She is convinced. 
I think she's the only one around her at the moment, but... So over in Daphne's room, Eloise comes in to congratulate her sister on not having to marry Bearbrook. She then asks Daphne if she's afraid to get married and bear children. She reminds her of how beautiful it was. What? <laughs> she rem- I'm, I'm just I'm going to keep that in there just so you know. <laughs> Great. She reminds her of how awful it was to to witness their mother giving birth. Daphne reveals that while she is afraid of childbirth, the blessing comes when the child arrives and it is worth the pain. Eloise is having none of this. She's not buying it. And she tells her sister that she must that it must be exhausting playing the game of pretend. And I just want to say I totally understand Eloise. I am totally in Eloise because I've Got a huge fear of childbirth. I'll be honest with you. I've gotten over my fear of marriage, clearly, because here you are. But childbirth Ta-da. childbirth still feels really scary to me. Like, we, we don't have children. Um, we don't? I mean, none that I know of. Are, are there children I don't know about? No, but he's sat in that chair over there. He's talking about our dog, who we do treat like a child because we put a onesie on him every night before he goes to bed. That's not just because he's a child. That's because he scratches himself. He's got allergies. That's true, but we do treat him like a child. Anywho, so I, I'm with Eloise here. I, I do feel like um, childbirth does look traumatic, and part of that's probably just because I haven't been through it, but then part of it is probably because some women have had traumatic situations. And I'll be honest, without the use of modern medicine like we have today, I'd be triply scared to give birth. So I totally understand Eloise being afraid here. And back then there wasn't really uh, proper sex education and childbirth education. So, so much of things around, you know, childbirth had to be shrouded in mystery for young girls and even young boys, men in general, because, you know, there was only certain people that would come in during childbirth. So it had to feel daunting um, to have a child because if you'd been around anyone that had had one or someone with a traumatic situation or like these girls where they, they heard their mother screaming in the other room, it had to be a scary thing to kind of think about that part of motherhood, which is, you know, the very beginning with childbirth, especially with so many women dying in childbirth. It had to be a scary thought even if in public they had to pretend like it was something that they wanted without question. Yeah. I mean, I would also be scared of it, to be honest with you. Um, but again, a great scene between the, the, the sisters here. The character of Eloise is good throughout the show. But I think this this episode, the second episode, is really where she started to shine and open up and we saw the possibilities. Um, but again, the characterization is really good. Um, you know, something that we haven't been doing that we probably should is to note the screenwriter of each each episode that's probably true Mm -hmm. we'll look that up uh we'll put that in the group and we'll talk about it next episode because you're right we've been talking about how good the writing is and so giving credit to the screenwriters is really important so we just got so caught up in the story itself that we forgot to mention the people who who made it happen well that's a compliment yeah yeah okay so we're once again at another ball. We are up to about five or six dances in two episodes. So many balls. Stop saying that. 
So the Duke and Daphne are dancing, and the Duke insists that Daphne calls him by his first name if they are to believed to be in love. Simon. It's a small way that the couple are getting a little bit more intimate. Simon promises her that he'll help her find a husband, though we can see a little bit of doubt in his eyes. In another flashback, now when Simon is an adult, we can see him going to the deathbed of his father. His father seems pleased at how his son has turned out and that he's turned up. He, of course, is only concerned at the Hastings name being continued. Simon tells him that that will never happen as he makes a vow that he will spite his father by never bearing children. The Hastings name will die with him. We find out that this is why Simon will not have children. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So, wow, what an episode. We see right here at the end that the Duke is warring with himself about Daphne. He's clearly growing feelings for her, and yet he's made this spiteful vow to his father. He can't get too emotionally involved with her because he feels like he doesn't want to have children to satisfy his father, who was only concerned about the family line in the first place. So I feel like this is where the real intrigue of this series starts to kick in. And I really enjoyed this episode. This is where we're really finding out kind of what um, the big problem is in this is that it's not that he can't have children. It's that he is choosing not to. And we, we see from these flashbacks, like he's got a pretty strong reason why he doesn't want to. Um, but he obviously thinks. he thinks, but obviously this is going to get in the way of him marrying and maybe being happy with anyone. And so I think for a guy that young, you can kind of tell in some ways, you know, a good looking guy like him, he's a Duke, this idea that he's going to just stay single forever. I mean, we can clearly see that's not going to happen, but well, he, he doesn't necessarily want to stay single. I mean, as we saw at the start of the episode, he's happy to sleep with like mistresses or women that, uh, you know, but I mean, that's still socially. kind of, yeah, I suppose that's still kind of being single though, in terms of like, he doesn't want a lifelong partner, but does right, he not right. want a lifelong partner because he's just like, ooh, I want to go about town and this is who I am? Or is it simply because of his father? And so if he does, if he is someone that wants a lifetime long relationship, then he's basically denying himself happiness. So so a couple of things. In that in that flashback scene where he goes to speak to his father, the subtitles were, were slightly out of sync with what the character actually says. So... You know, maybe if if you know listeners would like to go back and look at that scene again, it's around fifty four minutes of the second episode. But he says to his dad, "I'm going to make the only I'm going to I'm going to make to you the only vow I've ever made." But the subtitles says the only vow I will make. Right. So depending on which version we kind of take, it, like the implication is still the same. If it's the only vow that he's willing to make to his dad, saying, "I'm not going to have children." That's also implying that he's he's honourable enough to make and keep a vow, right? In a sense, like he's got a sense of duty about vows. Right. He doesn't want to break his word. Right. So to him, taking the vow of marriage is also just going to be as important. So maybe he doesn't want to, to have that lifelong partner, not because he doesn't want to be happy, but just because he knows that he doesn't, he can't make that vow to a wife without breaking his first vow. 
and he basically just doesn't want to break his word. So in his own way, he's trying to be honorable. Yeah, um, no, I, I get that. That makes that makes sense. And I, I definitely feel like in a time period like this, you know, your honor was much more serious than it is now. So I, I mean, yeah, it could make him break a, a whole family name, right? I mean, that's the whole point with um, Daphne being uh, spoken about in in the dark garden walk or whatever Lord Burbrook was blackmailing them with. It's yeah. it's all about honor, right? Yeah. So I mean, that final scene was was so intense. It was really good, um, but the music was ramped up to kind of thriller levels almost. Um, and Simon is quite vengeful, and sure, like we get it, like he's he's clearly damaged by his father's attitude throughout his life. Um, but it is quite a big thing to decide that he won't carry on the line. I mean, what would you do? you were in that situation would you also want to spite your dad who's awful or would you be like he's dead and good riddance and i'm gonna live my life the way i want so i mean obviously i didn't go through it so i can't say for certain how i'd how i'd literally react but if i wanted to be as vengeful as simon was in that moment i don't think i would i don't i definitely wouldn't do it to my dad in real life but you know if i was wanting to be vengeful maybe i would say that to him on his deathbed i think it's a horrible thing to do by the way i don't like that at all but maybe i would say that and then as soon as he's gone be like right okay (laughs) let's go and have kids now do you know what i mean like right so like as long as that's the last thing he hears then yeah then you've done the job you wanted to do basically you've gotten your revenge for having a horrible father simply by saying that simply by saying it because it's not like he'd know so no i i think though that that is probably the cruelest thing that we've seen a character do on this show i mean we gotta keep going but yeah okay fine but but still that yeah it it is it is pretty cruel but i think we we see why simon has gotten to that point no 100 percent. i'm not saying that there isn't a reason for it i just i don't I don't personally like it. No, I I, I agree. It, yeah. It seems it seems like it would be a very hard thing to have to do and I don't agree with it as well. But clearly he he needed to settle things with his father and it just didn't happen and instead that's kind of the way it came out and now it's going to affect every relationship he has going forward if he doesn't yeah. kind of settle his feelings with his dad for his own sake and we kind of see see that in the upcoming episodes. I think a better vengeance would have been to find his dad, not on his deathbed, but, you know, leading up to it, and to show him how good of a... Well, not good. How how well brought up he'd been because of Lady Danbury and not because of his father. Yeah, but that would satisfy his father one way or another. So it wouldn't matter no, to his no, father. But, I mean, cause, no, because then later on he could still say, you know, I'm not going to have children. But but not to do it on the on his death. I don't know. I don't know. Anywho, it's hard. I know. It is. It yeah. So that's the end of the second episode. We've really enjoyed recapping the uh, second episode with you all. I don't know about you, but my plans for this week are to read the second novel in the Bridgerton series, which is called "The Viscount Who Loved Me." I'm really intrigued now. Uh, what's going to happen with Anthony? Which is what I'm assumed will be covered in this next book kind of what we saw from the series anyway so i'm 
I'm kind of hoping that's what it's about. Um, if you'd like to discuss uh, reading the books, if you have had a hankering for reading the books like I have after watching the series, then you can follow along with me while I read the second book. Join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash Regency Rumors, and we can discuss it there. Episode one just begged us to move on to episode two. And honestly, this one just begged for the next episode to come on as well. I think the exploration of characters was fantastic in this episode and it was about now that i realized that the show wasn't going to be a slog to get through when i agreed to watch it the first time thanks very much well i was worried hey it ended up being really good and you need to trust me like i trust you when you said the mandalorian will be good will you sit down and watch these space aliens put light sticks against each other and i said there isn't a single there isn't a single okay Never mind. Um, but I trusted you. The point is, I trusted you, mm-hmm. and it was good. The Mandalorian was really good. Um, and so you needed to trust me with Bridgerton. And, I and did. how did I do? You did very well. Thank you. It was a, it's a fantastic recommendation. So I, mean, I wouldn't be talking about it now uh, if, if it hadn't been. Fine. So I'm actually in the middle of reading a new Star Wars book. So I won't be joining my lovely wife in reading the Bridgerton books. But maybe in the future... Maybe I'll force you someday. You still haven't read any of Jane Austen, so that is first protocol. I'm just going to say that right now. You still haven't read any of the Harry Potter books. Okay, Jane Austen trumps Harry Potter hands down. You know what? The day that you agree to read one Jane Austen book, I will sit down and read Harry Potter. I'll do it. I've already read a Bronte novel. Does that not no. put one in the bank? Oh my gosh, are you serious? What's wrong with Bronte? There's not. There's nothing wrong with Bronte. Jane Eyre is one of my favorite, if not my favorite books, but it's still not Austen. You need to read a bit of Austen. I I would have assumed, I would have, I would have assumed you would have read something like that in high school, anyway. So it's kind of crazy to me that you've, you've not been forced to read it. No, 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 no. Don't don't be silly. Austen isn't on the the reading list. We had Shakespeare. We had Austen goes right alongside that. I can't believe that. No, it's really unfortunate, but the in terms of the kind of literature um, of the canon that we read, uh, and I'm trying to think of it, that's why I'm struggling here, but yeah, in terms of novels, they were actually a lot more recent than you'd probably expect. Mm. I think in high school, I had to read kind of the, the normal American novels, um, Mark Twain. I think I did, I did have to read some C.S. Lewis, um, and then Jane Austen, I had to read Emma, and so I'm just surprised huh. you being British, you didn't have to read something of Jane Austen's, but no. we'll rectify that. Anywho, I, I think it's a shame that you haven't read any of Jane Austen. Anybody in our in our Facebook group who is following along with us on the podcast, comment on Facebook what Jane Austen novel you think he should read. I'm partial to Persuasion because it's my favorite, but um, there are... Others, obviously. So comment on Facebook which book you think he should read and we'll make him. Okay, goodbye. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning into our podcast. And until next time. Goodbye.